Welcome to U-Turn. This episode, I'm talking with Mark Nelson. You might not know Mark by name, but if you have been to a production at the renowned Guthrie Theater here in Minneapolis in the past 10 years, you may have seen him perform. Mark is a Juilliard-trained actor who has appeared in over 20 productions for the Guthrie. He has also appeared in television and in film. But Mark isn't here with me today because of his acting career, though I'm sure we'll spend more than a few minutes talking about it. Because three years ago, is it uh, three years ago when you made this life-changing decision, Mark? It, three years ago when 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 things got completely serious, but yes, it's been a much longer process than that. Sure, and that's, that's definitely what we're going to get into. But three years ago, Mark made a big change in his life, one of the probably the bigger changes I will ever talk to a guest about on this show. So after two decades as an actor, at least, right, something like that, yeah, yeah, he absolutely. decided to go to medical school. And <laughs> you are in the process of finishing up your final year in uh, medical school right now? I am. So I'm actually about three and a half, three and a half, three and a half done and another uh, four or five months before graduation. Unbelievable. Fantastic. So I have to ask, first off, how old were you when you made this decision? You can approximate. You don't have to, you know, get too close. But (laughs) Uh, so I want to say that I was uh, I I think because there were, you know, there were about three years of of. going back to school before I actually even could apply to medical school. So I think I, I think I kind of made the the shift in my mind when I was uh, 40 years old. That is Um, awesome. (laughs) That is so cool (laughs) because I, one of the reasons that I'm doing this show is because I think a lot of people have ideas about things they'd rather do than whatever it is they're doing currently, but they just don't find either the courage or the wherewithal, or they don't believe that they can make these changes but I've got to believe uh, Mark Nelson is living proof that you can do it <laughs> if you want to make it happen. But we'll get there eventually, I promise. But yes. I've been starting with all my guests kind of getting into where they came from, their family background, and you know, just kind of their, their life story a little bit to see what it is that shapes these types of big career changes that people make. So I guess I'll just start off by asking, where'd you grow up? So I grew up, um, was born in... Um, Born in Denver, Colorado, or just outside of Denver, and uh, lived there, you know, those years that I don't really remember because I was too small. Moved to uh, moved to Oregon, a little town called Dallas, Oregon, for a while. But really, most of my, you know, childhood memory is, is in Utah. First, this little town called Price, Utah, which was a little teeny coal mining town, and, and strangely almost completely devoid of, of Mormons, which is a rather exceptional thing about Utah, I think. But then I think by the time I was in middle school, we, we moved to a, uh, we moved to a suburb of Salt Lake city. So that, that was kind of really, you know, my childhood. Um, I think Utah is a funny place. Um, Certainly, I'm not Mormon, and and although a lot of people I know and and love dearly are are Mormon, you you anytime you get into a situation where there is just that kind of overwhelming percentage of people who kind of think the same and feel the same and and believe the same, uh, it unfortunately breeds a kind of a a really high level of kind of ignorance. I guess I'll say. Well, it's something like 90%, um, right, Mormon, at least, I think? I think so. I mean, you know, it's funny because if you get into, like, downtown Salt Lake City proper, it's actually probably only, I say it's only, it's 46% Mormon or something like that, which, if it was any other religion anywhere else, it would be an astounding 
I mean, 46 is still a huge, huge population that, that thinks of one religion. Um, and then once you get outside of the Salt Lake City proper, you know, downtown Salt Lake City, all of the suburbs, I think. I grew up in a in a suburb called Sandy, Utah, and, and you know, there were these crazy t- statistics where you'd hear that, uh, that um, the, the, the median age in that particular town was 16 because people had so many children and something like a 90% Mormon rate. So I was definitely kind of on the outside looking in, you know. Do you think that that shaped your experience growing up maybe more than it would have elsewhere? Yes, absolutely. I think, I mean, it's funny because I think um, a lot of times I tell people that I, I, I'm um, I'm not Mormon by faith, but I'm certainly Mormon culturally. Uh, How you do know, you mean? There is, well, I think Mormons, it's, it's, a, it's actually in some, in some ways it's a great trait about Mormons. They're a very... They, they work really hard at being productive and being happy and being positive and being friendly. And, and those are all great, great attributes, I think. Um, uh, it, it gets to a point, though, with Mormons where I think, um, you know, the, the, the happiness – People, people here in Minnesota talk about Minnesota nice, where it's like, oh, that's you're nice, but I, I don't know if that means you're in denial about certain things about yourself, or <laughs> you know that there's yeah, like, oh, yeah. Okay, there's, there's nice, but then there's kind of like, wow, you really don't need to be that nice. But but I, anyway, I grew up yeah, out in in uh, Utah, and uh, and so and I, I had this. You know, I'm friendly, friendly, friendly. It's really important. I want everybody to like me, and I want to be nice, and I want to be happy, and da 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 da. And and it took me. I mean, it's funny. I I left Utah and went to uh, New York City. Is where I moved after I got out. And and it took me several years in New York City to kind of beat the the Utah niceness out of me. <laughs> <laughs> and now you've got Minnesota nice, perhaps kind of filling and in its place. I'm back here in Minnesota nice, and I try to you know I try to kind of balance it with you know. New York aesthetic. So, so you grew up as kind of an outsider in a culture that was definitely not like like what your family was. It sounds like, but what yeah. did your parents do? It sounds like you moved around a little bit at least to to finally yeah. end up in Utah. What did your parents do for a living? Dad was a uh, uh, it was a civil structural engineer, so he worked on power plants and uh, a lot of different things like that. Uh, and then eventually he went back and got his MBA and became a project manager. So he would kind of orchestrate a lot of big, big, you know, um, jobs. At one point he was, uh, at one point he was, he, he had a big job out at, at the Snowbird Ski Resort where they were doing a whole lot of renovation, which was great because right about the time I was in high school in Utah, um, because dad worked at Snowbird, um, we could ski for an, you know, we could basically get a season pass to Snowbird Ski Resort for $25, um, which was unbelievable. Certainly meant that it wasn't great for my academics because it was just too easy. You just see the snow falling, and it would get to be noon, and you think, I think I need to get up there in this afternoon and do a little bit of skiing. So, so not a lot of studying necessarily in your off well, hours. Maybe, maybe not quite so much. Yeah. So, so dad is a structural engineer, yeah, project manager, engineer, MBA, and mom. Mom was an elementary school teacher, first grade for a while, and then third grade for a while. So. 
Then how did you um, f- find your interest in acting? Uh, I ask in particular, not just because you became an actor, but uh, the only person I know who moved to Utah specifically told me that one of the strangest things about it was the fact that in Blockbuster Video, you know, when they existed, there was an entirely separate section of Mormon-only movies. <laughs> and that there's an industry that just basically thrives to feed the Mormon culture, like we've been talking about. So I've, I'm kind of wondering then, as a kid in Utah, you've become interested in acting. Did you watch Mormon movies, or were you watching more mainstream stuff? Or like, how did that get going? Yeah, definitely, I was watching mainstream stuff. I'm, I'm actually surprised. This is the first I've heard of the the Mormon. I mean, I know that like. I tell this story about a friend of mine who was an actor in town, um, who was a very, very dear friend of mine. Um, and 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 anytime anybody came to, to Salt Lake City and wanted to film The Life of Christ, this friend of mine would always play Judas because he just looked, you know, these deep, dark set eyes and car, you know, he just looked sinister. And so it looked he like was somebody always- would turn on you. Yeah, exactly. So he was a wonderful actor, and and he made a living playing Judas for several years there in Utah. So, but how did I get into theater? I think it's funny because I think I, you know, I did I dabbled with it in high school. I was never like a diehard. My whole life, I wanted to be an actor. I, I started doing it in high school, and and. And people told me that I was really good and, and that I was fun. You know, and then I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, and then uh, come time to go to college, and I auditioned for a um, for a scholarship at the University of Utah. There was a, they had a theater department scholarship where it was like I could get free tuition while I went to school there. Um, you know, through the theater department, they awarded one scholarship a year. Um, and I, you know, I think more than anything, lucked out. And wow, I was the one that got the scholarship that year. So I, I got to, uh, I, I got to, you know, free tuition for four years while I went there, as long as I kept something like a three three grade point average. Not knowing at that point whether or not I even wanted to really seriously become an actor. Um, Did you manage to resist was, the allure of the ski slopes during this time to maintain that three point three average? Yeah, exactly. It was enough to keep me going, but. But there was a. I certainly say that there was. Then I got to the university, and and as luck would have it, there was there was a man who was kind of the head of the actor training program, and you can only imagine he was this uh, gay African American, just incredibly intelligent, incredibly kind, deep. You know, really became kind of a spiritual mentor for me. Um, and and it didn't take me long to kind of realize that wow there was really you know there was really something profound about this art form you know theater and uh you know this was a guy that that continued to be a dear friend of mine for the rest of his life he passed away about a year ago at this time but he was a remarkable remarkable human being and i think my decision to kind of really pursue theater um, has a lot to do with my um, my time with him. So That's really interesting because as somebody who is outside the theater world, and I'm guessing a lot of other people think this way also, is we think of theater and other arts as being callings that people, you know, they grow up from a very young age mm-hmm. thinking that they're going to do it and, and what have you. But it actually sounds to me more like your journey was very similar to what many people find in the normal careers where they, they, yeah. they're good at something and people tell them they're good at something. But a mentor is what kind of makes everything come together and click for them. 
Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting about it, too, is, is even the fact that, that even though, yes, I'm good at something and there I, I, and I met a mentor and, and what was interesting about this 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 man was that certainly I spent your your first year acting class. You'd go into his acting class and 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 uh, and it seemed like at least once a week he would hand you this article or some article that told you, you know, um, that that only you know less than five percent of actors actually make a living doing their career and and you know that there's just it's just an impossible business to get into and and you know and and then you would have these conversations well why are we doing this why do you want to do this why do you you know and it, it could just drive you crazy there were times where you just think please please don't make me read another article that tells me that this is an impossible career to go into um and yet, I, I, I really, really so loved him for doing that. As I went on, because it, it he, he, he certainly established in me this idea that that don't don't go on autopilot. You, you you really owe it to yourself to to constantly be kind of like assessing why am I doing this? What is it that I'm hoping to get from this? What am I you know? What am I doing? <laughs> So a very self-reflective approach to the career. Yeah, not- I think so. Yeah, and especially with something like, you know, I, I think theater. It, we'll we'll get to this as we go on, but certainly, you know, so many people I know that 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 never get the opportunity to start a family or never even really ha- have a difficult time kind of establishing relationships because it's such a kind of vagabond profession and, and it's so the work is so sporadic. And when there is work, you have to go. There's no, you know, you really have so little say in terms of like where and how you want to live your life. If this is what you want to do. Um, so with those kind of, you know, and then do you actually make a living doing it? And if you do make a living, what kind of a living is it? Um, there are a lot of a lot of hard things about theater. And, and, and now even in medicine, it's like, listen, it's not as though I, I have tremendous amounts of free time. These are, these are both professions that ask so much of, of you that, uh, you know, I, I don't understand how people go into them without really kind of seriously kind of measuring what it is that they hope to hope to achieve. What is it they want from these things? Sure. So uh, you get through this program then, and where do you start working? Do you move to New York City then right away? Or is there a thriving theater scene in, in Utah that you try to uh, get work in at first? It's actually interesting that I, that I, I went to – so I go to, um, I go to school there for a year. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'm studying and, and I get to the end of that year and, and I decide at the end of that year that, you know what, um, the, the life that I would have to leave, I mean, the life that I would have to lead in, in terms of if I wanted to be a working actor, I just didn't know if, if, if I could do that. So I, I stepped out of the theater departments and, uh, and actually started taking biology and chemistry and because there was a whole other side of my brain that was interested in science. Oh, and was okay. In all of those things. So I do that for about two, two quarters. This was back in a quarter instead of semesters. But so I do that for about two quarters. And then, um, <laughs> then I, I, I had a girlfriend at the time who was going to Vassar College in New York. So I left for spring break to go see her in, in New York. 
Um, and she wanted to go to Manhattan for the, for a couple of days. So we, we, you know, we go down from Poughkeepsie to Manhattan and, and, uh, she wanted to see a play. So we stand in line at TKTS and, and we end up getting tickets to a Neil Simon play called rumors. And, uh, we get to the play and I open the program and, uh, the actor, one of the actors starring in the play is named Mark Nelson. Um, which was crazy. Um, didn't necessarily make me think, oh, my God, I'm, I, I'm, I'm making a mistake. This is something I, I, I need to, you know, but it was certainly something rattling. And it, it was later, I think, we, when we got back to, to um, Poughkeepsie that, that my girlfriend at the time was asking me, did that make you want to go back and do theater? And I started in on this conversation and eventually got to the point where it was like, you know what, I think the thing is, if I went back to theater, it would be because I felt like I hadn't really tried at theater and I didn't want to find myself at 45 or 50 or whatever thinking, wow, I wish I had tried. And somehow, even as I'm having that conversation, I thought to myself, I don't feel like I really did try. And that was enough to make me want to go back. So then I end up going back to the university and meeting this dear friend of mine again um, and saying, hey, I want to come back to the theater, but I'm only here a short time. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm taking classes here kind of on my own schedule, doing my own thing. And meanwhile, I'm auditioning for Juilliard in New York City. So I end up, before I actually graduated from Utah, I ended up getting accepted to Juilliard. So leaving the University of Utah and coming to New York to study at Juilliard. So, and what was your experience at Juilliard like? Juilliard... Um, Juilliard is an intense experience. You, so you get, you know, there's a group of, say, about 15 of you, and you're in a class, and you do class five, six days a week. Um, most of the day, you know, like all day long, movement and voice and speech and, and acting and script analysis, and just that's all you're doing is performance. And then you're rehearsing plays in the evening. So you are with these people, these 15 people, day in and day out, six days a week for four years. Um, my experience there was that it brought out all of the, you kind of end up very much functioning as a kind of, as a dysfunctional family. Um, and everybody kind of finds their own kind of neurotic niche. There's the troublemaker, there's the peacemaker, there's the, you know, there's the crier, there's the, it's a really, really, um, strange and intense experience i don't know if it's the same now but certainly when i was there it was a it was a difficult it was a difficult time i think it's also true i think so what's interesting about this is that at the same time that i was um going to juilliard in new york my older brother was accepted to medical school at the university of utah the same year that i was accepted to juilliard so we would write these letters back and forth to each other. Um, and we would talk about how both of these experiences, medical school and, and drama school, were so completely um, absorbing um, that it was very difficult to kind of maintain any life balance to say, you know, well, that's just school and I have my life and family and friends and I do things other. So a, a good day at school 
and you were absolutely elated. It was the most wonderful thing in the world. A bad day at school, and and you were you were in tears. You were just he was, and and my brother would tell me he's in medical school and and. He does well on a day in class or he does well in a test and he feels like he's the king of the world, but he does poorly on a test and, and it's just, it's really hard to kind of, you know, find a balance in these intense experiences. Because so, of the full absorption, like it, it is your yeah. entire life. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny, I mean, when I talk to people now and they, I, I say this as much to, to to people who are starting medical school as I do to people who are starting, you know, a, a theater school is find balance that it, it's, yes, this is so I know, I know how passionate you are about becoming an actor or how passionate you are about becoming a doctor, but find balance. You know, find friends that don't have anything to do with medicine or theater um, and hang out with them on a regular basis. Do stuff other than your passion. Otherwise, you it's just you will not you won't you won't be a good doctor. You won't be a good actor if you don't have something else going on. So did you find that balance at Juilliard or are you uh, advising from <laughs> from not having done that? Um, I it's funny. I. um I knew my now wife. I knew her at the University of Utah. She was an actress at the University of Utah, and I had a huge crush on her, even as I was going back to Poughkeepsie and seeing this 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 girlfriend. I, I already like thought my now wife Michelle was was a pretty awesome lady. Though so anyway, you know, a year later, and my girlfriend in Poughkeepsie and I have broken up, and I come to New York. To start at Juilliard, and my now wife was the year ahead of me at Juilliard. I'm just going to use her name. It's Shelley. Um, so Shelley is already at Juilliard. She went to Juilliard the year before I did, and I got to Juilliard, and I think probably within three months at Juilliard, we were we were together and in love and. So she kind of became my uh, my space, even though she was an actress and she was at Juilliard. She kind of became my space to kind of step away from the insanity that was the school. That we could we could kind of we kind of would get together and as much as possible, I, I would kind of step away from Juilliard. So and so you were saying that your cohort or class or whatever you'd call it, it was only fifteen people for your year. Mm -hmm. And her class was similarly sized, I assume. Yeah. So mm -hmm. what are the odds that two actors from Utah both end up at Juilliard, unless there was a Utah quota, which I assume there wasn't? Uh, that's <laughs> that's actually pretty incredible. You obviously were both very talented uh, to have been chosen. And yeah. it just it's just crazy. That's, uh, that's a pretty interesting that you had known her. I mean, I'm sure that being in the acting world, it made sense that you know her in Utah, but that you both ended up in the same place is really interesting. So, yeah. so she is your, your outside of Juilliard at Juilliard, which I get what you're saying. Cause you're saying that yeah. the class itself was kind of this big dramatic, overly, yeah. uh, emotive <laughs> pool of people, but she wasn't part of that. She was outside of it. So you were yeah. able to, to have her and that's, that's a good thing. And so, then she must have graduated before you did. And yes. then does she start working uh, and kind of give you an idea of what it's like to, to work as an actor in New York or. And it's like, okay, so Juilliard is, Juilliard is also funny that, you know, because Juilliard has the, the, um, 
they that have <laughs> the Kevin Spacey's and the the William Hurts and the Robin Williams and the you know I mean there's there are, you know incredibly incredibly successful people that come out of Juilliard and I wouldn't necessarily do I think that uh, for whatever reasons students go to that school and and they kind of have this assumption that they too will graduate from Juilliard and they too will find themselves, you know, the next superstar and, and movie star and, you know, and, and he, he, to the point where it's like you see somebody who went to Juilliard and, and they come back to school for whatever reasons and they're living a successful life as an actor, but you don't necessarily know their name. And you see people who kind of act like, oh, yeah, because it didn't really work out for you. Like it, it's it's you're either a superstar or you're a failure or something like that. Um, where was I going with this? Um, well, I was wondering if Shelly then started working or so how Shelley that works. Gets out yeah. And and Shelly 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 is a absolutely phenomenal actress, and I don't say that just because I'm married to her, but she really, really is an amazing actress. Um, she's also incredibly. Uh, <laughs> strong-willed and and a very passionate um so she she graduates from juilliard and uh you know a lot of the agents in new york they they want to talk to you when they want to meet you they want to see and so shelly i think much more than i had all kinds of agents and people really really interested in her um um but she she's a, she was a really passionate artist in a way that uh, she'd laugh if I told this, but just the idea that that she wasn't necessarily interested in meeting with an agent unless that agent had come to the school and had seen her um, her production of Hedda Gabler. Um, she'd roll her eyes now because now, of course, we're like, I don't care if you've seen my Hedda Gabler as long as you can get me, you know, in the door and blah, 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 you know. But at the time... Uh, you know, she was very, very particular about who she wanted to talk to and who she wanted to work with and, and things like that. So she gets out and and yeah, she was immediately in. I think the first one of the first things she does was um, the Pelican Brief, that that film with Denzel Washington that came out for a oh, while. Oh, yeah, I've, I've seen that. Julia Roberts also in that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, she did that right away. And, and uh, you know, she was working in theaters around the country. And by that point, we were living together. So I kind of saw, you know, and knew enough to know kind of where things would go after uh, after I graduated from, from Juilliard. And then so once you did graduate and finish, what was your first role or first job that you booked? So the first thing I did – the first thing I did that really kind of I was aware of um, was was uh, <laughs> this musical, Broadway musical. It was a new musical um, starring Tommy Toon, um, and it was it was a it was a it was a national tour that was supposed to come and uh, and open on Broadway. That was like like so it would it would tour around the country and they would fix it. And they would. The kind of make it perfect and wonderful, and then it would come into into broad, you know, to Broadway to this wonderful opening, and it would be so exciting. And when I started this job, I was like a, a two line part. I was I was just a small little role of this uh, songwriter that gets his cigarette case stolen, um, 
but they they had such a, a tough time with this play. They kept rewriting and fixing, and then they they kind of they brought in a new um, uh, script doctor to kind of rewrite the play, and and they just kept futzing and futzing and futzing because they just couldn't. We'd go and we'd open somewhere, and and the critics would pan it, and then they'd make a bunch of changes in the next city to try and make it better, and critics would still hate it, and and in the meantime my role kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger as it would go along until about two weeks before we were supposed to open in New York, I was the second lead. I'd end up, I ended up with a girl at the end of the play instead of Tommy Toon. It was a huge, huge role for me. Um, but the play with, with all due respect, the play was so horrible that I was not looking forward to coming into New York with this play. And then about two weeks before we were supposed to, to come to New York, Tommy Toon broke his toe or his foot. And uh, so he couldn't do the play and they just pulled the plug on the whole thing. So it never opened in New York. Which maybe was a relief to you, it sounds like. <laughs> in retrospect, bit. again, in retrospect, I'm like, ah, it's fine, I'm coming to New York. But but at the time, I actually was. I was really, really relieved that I was not coming to New, new York in that show. So so was this experience, uh, what would be the word or the phrase, was it kind of a wake-up call uh, as to what the life of an actor could be like? Or was it something you expected or, or but did it meet your expectations basically for your first experience? Um, gosh, that's a, that's a hard, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think, um, just cause I imagine, you know, especially being an actor, you're not, well, I, I guess you didn't really say much if you had worked while you were at Juilliard. I don't know. Do actors work while they're, studying there or do they tend not to i mean very 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 few i knew one guy who actually one guy who actually managed to kind of pay his way through juilliard by doing voiceovers but he was definitely the exception so you're basically you're doing this full time so i'm thinking that just like any student getting out in the quote real world is usually a big shock because it's not often similar to what you've been doing in school so i guess i'm wondering if this first play was kind of that type of shock like oh the guy they brought in a script doctor and my role has expanded and all of a sudden now i'm the second lead when i was not the second lead that type of thing <laughs> because that doesn't seem like something you would have learned in school or or dealt no. with yeah absolutely not and i i think you know i i think there's probably also a certain level of uh you know you're in you're in art school and 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 school is a school is a wonderful place to to be idealistic to to you know you you spend your time in in school working on Shakespeare and working on on Chekhov and and like great you know Arthur Miller you work you work on the greatest plays written by the greatest playwrights you know in history and 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 then when you get out um, and you 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 work on a Tommy Toon musical that just you just you just it's it's very easy to kind of look at it and go, oh, it's so it's so not it's so not good, you know. And and in truth, it isn't particularly good. But you realize how how much harder it is to actually kind of make, you know, to to make theater in the real world is a very very different 
kind of thing. Sure. Versus the, uh, the idealized world that you would have been dealing with in school. That makes exactly. perfect sense. That makes perfect exactly. sense. And so did you maybe hard to remember, cause this was a while ago, but what was your vision for your career at that point when you're first out of school and you got your first job, did you see yourself as just being somebody who would try to just basically make it in theater alone? Were you hoping that you would end up getting some TV? I mean, what was your goal at that point? If you had one? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I talk about, I, I talked earlier about the idea that like, well, you go to Juilliard and there's a certain expectation that you are going to kind of become an incredible celebrity. I think it's funny. I, different people come out and at least they certainly seem to have different kind of, um, expectations for themselves. Um, I was still kind of the of the opinion that, that I, I got out of Juilliard and I was still kind of thinking to myself, God, are people really because at that point it was like, are people really going to hire me? Are they going to hire me and pay me like real money to act? It, it was kind of hard for me to to believe that that was going to happen and that, that was going to happen on a consistent basis. Um, because I had spent, you know, most of my life doing it for free or actually giving people money to get the opportunity to act. So, you know, there was definitely an early period of time where, where I thought every time somebody would hire me, I'd be kind of surprised that I was actually going to get the opportunity to do this. Sure. Uh, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And so this was in the mid nineties, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think '94 is when I graduated from Juilliard. So, so, and there were several years, you know, where where I was there. I mean, that tour lasted for about a year and a half. Um, it wasn't long after that, actually, that that one of after that tour ended. Um, even when I was an actor at the University of Utah, I knew about the Guthrie Theater. At that point, I, there was a man named Garland Wright who was running the theater, and and. And the theater had the reputation for for kind of being a destination theater where people people came from across the country because what was happening at the Guthrie at that point particularly was and then they were in rep so you could you could fly into Minneapolis for a weekend and see two shows at the Guthrie Friday and Saturday or two on Saturday and it was just the things that were going on here were. You, you just wanted to know what was going on at the Guthrie. It was a really, really unique place. Um, so even even back in Utah, I knew the Guthrie was a place that I really wanted to eventually end up working at. Um, and so after I got back to New York and after the tour and the Tommy Toon thing fell apart, I knew I, I started writing letters. That was about the time that Garland had left the theater and the new artistic director is a guy named Joe Dowling. And I wrote a letter because I wanted. I just was like, I I want to work at the the Guthrie, and so they called me in for um, called me in for an audition, and that uh, that was the first show that Joe Dowling directed in the at the as the artistic director. He directed something else before, but uh, it was a production of a show called Philadelphia Here I Come that I did uh, at the Guthrie. It was me. There were there were two of us that really. It was me and. Uh, and my co-star for that show was a guy named Rain Wilson, who um, uh, you probably know him from yes, uh, uh, The Office. Yes, that is so, so awesome. <laughs> yeah, he's he's 
awesome. He's such a great guy and a very dear friend of mine. I haven't spoken to him for a long time, but. Oh, I, I had no idea that he ever acted at the Guthrie. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. He's done a couple of shows there. He's an incredibly talented, like, you know, a wild, amazing, you know, great actor. Did so. you have a sense that he would become somebody pretty well-known or that could make a, a real a real go of it, honestly? <laughs> no, no. To tell you, you know, I mean, it's like he was a wild card. I loved working with him. But at that point in both of our careers, it was just like, oh, you're just praying the next thing comes along. And, and, and he was talking about this clown show that he wanted to start. And, and eventually it was the clown show that got him to L.A. And I, I remember actually him, you know, I do remember him saying, oh, yeah, I, I've been cast in the uh, American version of The Office. And, and I remember thinking, oh, OK, I turned it on the first episode came on and I was like, well, this is either going to be, he's going to either like skyrocket with this thing or else, or else it'll be canceled in three episodes. And then I, I kind of didn't watch it after that. And I remember like six months, eight months later, walking into a coffee shop somewhere and uh, a picture of Dwight, his character in the office was some guy's wallpaper on his on his laptop, and I thought, oh, my God, it's come to that. So. <laughs> you know that he's arrived then. <laughs> Absolutely. You've become wallpaper. Okay, so you've, you acted with Rain Wilson, your first production, Philadelphia, Here I Come, at the Guthrie. But this must have been, at that point, still long distance for you. You were traveling in from New York to perform at the Guthrie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so the Guthrie really was a destination then, and this was the old building at that point, I assume, correct? Exactly. Uh-huh. Which actually is uh, less than two minutes probably from where I live right now. Um, I live very close by. But then uh, you are still living in New York. How long do you stay out there? Do you and your wife stay there? So we end up staying there. Um, you know, and at this point we're living together. We're not married. Um, you know, it was a slow process to, to find that. I think we lived together for about eight years before we actually decided to get married. Um, well, you got to be sure, right? You got to be sure, and it was also that kind of like uh, I, I think uh, I, I think for Shelley probably more than me that it was very much you know she was very she was very career focused and she was very well this is what I want to do and and I'm not sure how marriage or I'm not sure how that fits into you know I, I think I talked about this earlier where I was saying. How do you make it work? I mean, when do you when's the right time to to get married? And and does that mean you're you're putting your career on hold? And and God forbid you start talking about kids because what does that do to an actress's career? Or what is it? How do you manage a family when you're trying to pursue a career? All of those things, you know, start to split your focus in a way that 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 can be very hard when you're an actor. I think sure. Probably well more so than any other career, I'm guessing. Or very, I, there's a very short list of careers that would be as affected. I think because it sounds like there was a lot of travel potentially required, long commitments where you're at a particular place for a while because of your job. That would be challenging mm-hmm. for sure. So, you know, I, I, there there was a period of time where, um, you know, I mean, we're we're in love, we're together, and and I get a job, and it's a it's a it was actually my first job at the Guthrie and it was for, for different reasons. It was a particularly long contract. So I was going to be in Minneapolis for four months. And then we found out that just as I was going to be finishing in Minneapolis in four months, I'd be coming back to New York and 
there would be about a two-day overlap before she had a job in Los Angeles that was going to take her for another three months. And so you just realize, you know, yeah, you can, I mean, sure, people try that long distance, but, oh, I, I hate it. And, you know, so that's seven months where you're living apart with the occasional. And, and I came to realize that, a phone call, you know, trying to maintain a relationship over the phone. I, we were only good for about four weeks before our conversations would become completely monosyllabic. You would, how are you doing? Fine. How are you? Good. You just, you just, we just, you just, you need to be in the same, same space. So, sure. Really, 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 really hard. So then how did you guys make that transition then to decide to get married? And then did you move to Minnesota at that point? Uh, how did that all happen? We end up, uh, we do a, um, we're doing a show called You Can't Take It With You. I think my high school did that and I think I saw it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think it was <laughs> in like 11th grade or something. I think that was one of the productions. So yes, I have seen that before. Yeah, we're playing the young lovers. I ask her, and I literally, my character asks her to marry me every single night on stage. Um, people love to say, it's practice, it's perfect practice, you're getting ready for it. You should, one, one night, you should slip a real ring into your, and it's like, no way. <laughs> but yeah. it was, absolutely, I mean, we spent that time together, and, and uh, it was, you know, like I say, when you spent so much time apart in this career and then all of a sudden you're in the same city and you're doing a show together and you're spending all of your time together and your days together and suddenly you start to realize that things like marriage can happen and, and they can work and that was kind of the beginning of it. What really happened then was was we were offered a job in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, that we would both be in the same play together and... Uh, but they were smaller parts in this play. And Shelley wanted to turn it down because it was smaller parts. And and I was the one that kind of said, well, if we're serious about trying to be together, maybe we should think about, you know, taking these parts so that we could be together. So that was a whole kind of process of, well, what's, what do we want and where are we going again? And, uh, and we ended up taking the roles and that job, kind of segued into another job where we were together and and so it wasn't too long before it was like okay i think we're in a good place now and and uh so i eventually ended up asking her to marry me and and she said yes and so, not on stage no no no, no. that's a smart choice i think <laughs> yeah so so you guys are married and then how do we get to minnesota so we get to um we get to minnesota by um we're um, we're married, and um, and then eventually, I think it was one of those, you know, like, oh, okay, we talk about kids, we talk about kids, we talk about kids, but are we going to do it? And you know, and it was finally, I think, we eventually got to this point where it was like, what are we waiting for? We basically decided, and it was really one of those like, okay. What are we waiting for? Why don't we just go off birth control and we'll see how it goes for the next six months. And two weeks later, we're pregnant. So <laughs> we were in Manhattan and we were just suddenly like, what are we going to do? And what we did know is we really didn't want to raise a family in Manhattan. I know people that do it. I don't, you know, I, I think because we were both from the West and we just didn't see how that 
was a life that we wanted to raise a kid in. And you had happened to have spent some time in Minnesota, of course, so you were at least familiar with what it was like to be here? Yeah, and Shelley actually had spent time here as well, um, separately. She'd gotten cast in, in separate plays, and, and she had done her own thing. So we both had a relationship with the Guthrie, um, and, uh, and that, which was great. So we kind of decided, you know what, I think what we're going to need to do is uh, we're going to need to um, – we're just gonna we're just gonna move to to Minneapolis and try to make it at the Guthrie. And then crazy thing happens is is um, and this was really hard but really nice. Is I, I was offered or I was I went in for an audition for this Broadway tour that was going to be touring around the country for a show called Contact. Um, and uh, actually, I was going in for a replacement for the guy on Broadway. So I go in for the role and, and I do the audition and they call back and they say, well, we're not going to give you the role on Broadway, but but how much, you know, what what, what would your contract be like if um, to, do, to go on the, the national tour? And I had no interest in touring at this point with my wife pregnant. And but I was like, all right, well, I will just ask for twice as much money as I've ever gotten as an actor and uh, thinking that there was no way that was going to happen, and, and they didn't—they didn't bat an eye. They were like, "Sure, great." So all of a sudden, I'm making great money, but it means we're traveling around the country while Shelley's pregnant. Um, and the whole idea being, okay, we'll save up a whole bunch of money, and then when the tour's over, we'll land in Minneapolis and we'll put down payment on a house and da da da. And and in the beginning, it was great. It was you know I'm eight. We're, we spent eight weeks in San Francisco you know, with Shelly pregnant and 10 weeks in Los Angeles. It was great. And where it got really awful was once Shelly kind of was too pregnant to travel. And she, and then she, she went to Boise, Idaho to be with her mom. And so I'm continuing to, to travel around the country and I managed to get to Boise for the birth of my own first daughter. And I was there for two weeks and then I had to go back on the road again. And it was this horrible, horrible time for, for both of us. I mean, she's alone with this brand new baby and I'm traveling around the country, like feeling, you know, guilty because I'm living in hotels and doing this show and, you know, feeling like an incompetent father. It was just, oh, it was a horrible, horrible mess. So oh, that sounds rough. Yeah. And so I'm sure that this is solidifying your decision to set down roots somewhere, probably realizing that this touring lifestyle is definitely not something that you can do if you want to have a family. Yeah, yeah. So and it, it absolutely does. I mean, you know, once the once the tour is over, there was a there was a there was a hiatus where we actually there was a hiatus where we came because this is I mean, this is a perfect example, I think, of theater life. OK, there's a hiatus. Um, in in the tour, and during that hiatus, um, I had I had uh, I had a herniated a disc during the show, so I had a bulging disc. So I went to Salt Lake City and had like surgery on my back um, during this two month hiatus of the tour, and meanwhile Shelley um, went to Minneapolis. By this time, Ella's born. Um, 
I'm getting surgery. We spend a couple of weeks in Salt Lake, and then we come to Minneapolis because Shelly has a job at the Guthrie. I think she was doing an Arthur Miller play at the time. So it was like, I'm there with this little baby, Ella, and I can't lift her because I have a herniated back. And Shelly's in rehearsals all day. And we're here for just long enough to kind of tour around and look at houses. And we find a house. We love the house. We buy the house. And... And then we travel off to we travel off to Toronto for six weeks with this brand new baby, even though we own a house in Minneapolis that we can't live in yet. And eventually Shelley goes back to Minneapolis and she's living in the house in Minneapolis while I'm finishing up the tour. It was just oh, it's just insane, crazy, crazy life. So <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that sounds nuts. I, I don't think that I'm going to make a, a career change into acting anytime soon. I think I'm I think I'm good with what I'm doing. So, and I, I not to condense like however many years of your life, but I assume then you do end up in Minneapolis yeah. together at the same time, and you're able to become a regular at the Guthrie. Is that pretty accurate to say? Yeah, we do. And I've you know and and yeah. So we're here. Uh, we have another daughter. So we have two now. We we're living in the same home. Wonderful house. Um, I worked consistently at the Guthrie. Shelley worked consistently at the Guthrie. We Minneapolis is, is an extraordinary, extraordinary community for the arts. That in that there are so many people I know here, actors that actually, you know, raise families and work as theater artists. It, and, and they're very. Uh, there are probably only you know there's Los Angeles and New York, and those places are crazy. And maybe Seattle, you can do it. You can't do it in San Francisco. Hey, you can kind of do it in Chicago, I think. I mean, it's really unique in the way it supports the arts that way. What makes so. what makes it possible for that to happen in Minneapolis? Because I was going to ask, it seems very unusual that you could basically be, you're like actors in residence here in, yeah. in Minneapolis, uh, raising a family, like you said. How is that yeah. possible in Minneapolis? You know, I mean, it's funny. I, I mean... I don't, I don't honestly know why Minneapolis is that great, other than to say that it's like Minneapolis makes it a priority. You know, there, there are certain things that, that you know, there's the, the bill that I can, the Heritage Act or something like that, where it's like, we just know that we're going to designate a certain amount to parks and to clean water and to the arts. And that's what we do, you know, um, I don't know why Minneapolis is just so kind of it, – it's a cultural thing, but, but it's not my culture because I didn't move here until I was much older. So I don't, I don't know how it is that Minneapolis became this place where they just said, yeah, arts, theater, not just theater, but you know, dance and music and, and visual you know, painting, sculpture. I don't know why Minneapolis is just so kind of amazing about it, but – but it obviously worked out for the Nelson family. <laughs> yes, it certainly did. But so. at what point then do you start thinking, well, you know, this acting thing is great, but maybe I want to do something else now that we're 50 minutes into the interview. I, I know. I told you I wasn't going to eat you for two hours and here we are. Yeah. Um, so when does it become this thing? Because you had had the, the past, just to remind everybody yeah. listening, <laughs> you had yeah. done some biology and chemistry, and, and you had, your, you have a brother who – is he still a physician, by the way? He is, yeah. yeah. Okay, so you've He's got this in your family, which I think I is have, key. Yeah, I have the older brother who's a doctor, and I actually have a younger brother who's actually an actor in Minneapolis. So I'm split right down the middle. Um, 
when does it happen? I think there, you know, unfortunately there's not the moment of like lightning strike. This, this just isn't working for me anymore. I mean, it goes, you know, obviously we started this interview saying that I, I think I really started to make the decision when I was 40, which brings up all kinds of, Oh, well, what does it mean in terms of midlife crisis? And is that what's going on? And, you know, like that, yeah, yeah, it's a midlife crisis. It's certainly a point where I'm like, what am I doing with my life? And, and what what am I accomplishing with my life? And what's important to me? Um, some people go out and buy really nice cars, I suppose. I made a career change. Um, I you, think... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to ask... I, I realize that, yeah, you're, you're right. Often in life, there isn't the eureka moment necessarily. Some people have that, but a lot of times yeah. it's a more gradual process. But right. do you remember the first time you brought this up to your wife? Because I have a feeling that that might be a more singular moment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so it's interesting because I think I think there may have been, you know, obviously, like you said, I, I took the classes at the university where there was this whole – other side of me. I think when I started theater, uh, it, it was kind of impressed upon me that like this is something that you commit your whole life to, and this is what you do, and this is this is the focus, and there is no kind of doing this plus plus medicine or or you know there's not you know you choose something and like this, and you compl- you commit yourself wholeheartedly to it, and. Uh, and I kind of bought into that and accepted to that, and that was the way that I was going. You know, that was the way that life was going to be. And um, there came a point where where there's a there's a doctor in town uh, by the name of John Hallberg, um, and he's a real Renaissance guy. He's kind of the voice for NPR, and you know, and and does a lot of different things. So he was putting together a conference, a medical conference, and he decided he wanted to do something different. Um, so he w- decided he wanted to see if he could put together a one-man show or somebody could put together a one-man show that they would perform at this medical conference. And he wanted it to be about this, this, uh, this Russian physician of the 18th century named Anton Chekhov, who also happened to be... Uh, an incredible short story writer and possibly one of the greatest playwrights that ever lived. Um, But he was a doctor at the same time. So he calls the Guthrie and he says, is there anybody over there that knows anything about Chekhov is interested? And they say, oh, by the way, um, Mark Nelson is a crazy, he knows everything about Chekhov. So I get this phone call from John Hallberg, and I know him from the radio, but that's it. I don't know him other than that. And he says, hey, would you would you be interested in putting together a one-man show? I'd never put together a one-man show together, but I was like, for whatever reasons, I said, yeah, sure. And then I thought, so I started to work on this, this play, this story about this man who is a physician – and a playwright and a storyteller and and I, I started to put this whole thing together and I was like, here's somebody that, that somehow doesn't seem to have to make that choice like you only get to use a part of yourself. Here's somebody that actually kind of seems to get to use all of himself. 
or I've, you know, I mean, at least from my perspective, I'm like, wow, he is an artist and he is a physician. Um, and I think that's where things really started to turn. <clears throat> it wasn't long after that um, that that I that I had a conversation with Shelley, where and, and we could talk about frustrations. Of course, there's frustrations with theater, um, and I've talked a lot about. Oh my gosh, life is so hard, but. That's what's crazy about theater, I guess, is that it's like, yeah, it's really, really hard, but there is a lot of joy and there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of life in theater, you know. But then I here I am at this point where I, I say, I, I've, I've had to put this piece of myself aside for a very long time. And the piece that I'm using as an actor, as an artist, um, is, is just not complete enough. There's something else I need to do. Um, and, and, and I realize now, I realize now that like the, the part of myself that, um, that, that, that it's not just a coincidence that it's medicine, that, that it, that really, at least in my mind, the progression from theater to the, what I want to do in medicine is a pretty natural progression, um, I know that doesn't sound like a natural progression, but it's it's what's interesting for me is I guess in theater it really isn't at least for me and for a lot of artists I know it really isn't like oh you know what I love about theater it's getting up in front of an audience and putting on a show yes there are those people and yes that's fine and that's nice but a lot of the people that I know and really love in theater what they love is rehearsal they like taking a story and really, really starting to really kind of investigating a story and really investing themselves emotionally in the journey of these people and trying to understand who these characters are and why they behave the way they behave. So that eventually you can do a show where people can understand who these people are and why why they act the way they act. Um, that's that's what's really exciting for me in theater and lo and behold you know you get into the you get into medicine and it's like every single person that comes into clinic and sits down with you and and you can say about them wow why you know you know that these cigarettes are killing you why are you doing it or you know that that this is you know why are you behaving the way that you are behaving what are you doing that and it you know you can you could very easily kind of get fed up with people and the choices they make that seem to be not in their best interest. But for me, what really excites me about theater is understanding why people are making these choices that, that are perhaps not, you know, well, this isn't going to make you the healthiest human being in the world, but why are you doing it? What, what, what do you, what is it about these choices that, that, you know, that makes you who you are? Why do you do it? So that actually makes perfect sense the way you just described it. It's, it's a study of motivation and, and and I can definitely see where medicine would, would require a lot of that. And uh, full disclosure for the, the audience, my wife is a resident physician right now. And that's actually how I first heard of Mark's story. Um, You had did a uh, small performance, I think, at the Mill City Clinic, so I probably would have seen John Hallberg there. Uh, uh, This was before you started med school, but um, I always kept you in the back of my mind 
somehow. Yeah. And, and so when I started doing this podcast, it, it, it seemed to make a lot of sense. And now hearing you describe it this way, the transition doesn't seem nearly as abrupt, I think, as many people would think, um, because I think they the common perception of doctors is that it's very coldly clinical. It's very um, driven by an understanding of biological processes. But something that I've learned by being married to a doctor is that it's actually much more about interaction with your patients and doing exactly what you're describing, which is understanding them and what goes into their health and their life and their outcomes. And I think that being an actor would probably give you good preparation for that, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, so what did Shelly say? Do you remember when you told her this? Was this she, a surprise to her? I think uh, – no. I don't, I don't think it was a surprise to her. I mean, um, I, you know, I can say now I don't think either one of us had any idea. You know, we imagined, oh, it's going to be hard and it's going to be a lot of sacrifice and things like that. But It's easy I don't to say those things, I think, yeah, without exactly. actually appreciating that. Uh-huh. Um, so, but I, I think she, she had realized for a while that, um, that theater was, was kind of not, um, completely fulfilling for me that there were, that I was, you know, things had gotten very rote for me and, uh, you know, and that I had just kind of maybe lost a certain kind of spark and excitement for, for what I was doing with my life. Um, you know, and, and. It also be, it's interesting, you know, when you've, you know, having kids and having kids that, that were starting to get old enough by this point that they were seeing choices that we were making and why we were doing what we're doing in our lives and, and thinking to myself, you know, I guess on some level I thought it's important that my kids don't, you know, don't think that, oh, well, that, that settling is not okay, I guess. Um, that if you know, because at that point it was like, eh, you know, I, I, I could probably continue to do this acting and make a decent, you know, have a decent career and support the family and da 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 and, and be fine and and you know I could probably do that, you know, and it would, but it, it, it certainly it certainly wouldn't be particularly challenging and they wouldn't necessarily see. Not to say that. I don't know. I mean, not to say that there aren't challenging things about theater, but that I, I think for me, at least, I was not. I, I, I wanted to, it felt like it was important to me that my kids see that, like, listen, you, 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 any time, any moment in your life that you decide that you need to do something else, it's OK to do it, you know. Which is definitely the point of this podcast. So I think it's great yeah. and very prescient that you say that because I think that that is a really important point, especially in this modern era where I think technology enables the learning of new skills in ways that have not happened previously. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's a lot easier to, to shift gears and, and get started on something. Maybe not in your case because – as you had mentioned, and I'm not sure that everybody realizes this, but you can't just all of a sudden go to medical school. There are no. prerequisites yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, still. So it doesn't matter that you've spent the last however many years of your life doing things out in the real world. You still have to have certain chemistry courses and biology courses and other yeah. things. So mm -hmm. how did you go about starting to make that transition? Did you um, basically just apply to school or where did you start taking your classes? I mean, it, it like talking about – I, I do say it, it is astounding to me. I, I often think 
I don't know how how did we ever function before we like had Google or anything like that for heaven's sake that that you know it begins with a Google search really like anything else that it's like I, I knew that I wanted to um, you know I, I was like okay this is something that I'm really interested in. what am I going to do what am I going to do so you know you start with something as simple as a Google search as far as like you know, what are the prerequisites for medical school at the University of Minnesota? Or, you know, you type that in and, and, you know, you just start clicking around and finding buttons and things like that. And, I mean, I have to say, it was not, um, being a non-traditional student, there was, it was unfortunate, you know, and and the, the challenge was that there was never a point where it was, or at least it never felt like there was a point where, there was a person or a, a web page or something that said, everything you need to know is right here, here. Just, just, just talk to me and I'll write it down on this piece of paper and you'll know where to go and what to do. Or look at this web page. It shows you everything you need to do. Or you want to know how to register for a class at the university? It's here. Let me explain it to you. That, you know, that was kind of like one of the, especially because because underlying all of this was kind of a, uh, a fear going into it. It's like, you know, it's one thing to say, yes, this is what I'm going to want to do. This is what I want to do. And then it's another thing to like literally go online and register for a course through the college of continuing education for chemistry 101. So that you begin. And then once you've done that, you're like, Oh, okay. I've registered for course. And then there's still another whole level of fear when the first day of class comes and, and you're a 40 year old man, you park your car and you walk over and, you know, it's this, this lecture hall filled with 250 you know, 18 year old students that are kind of doing whatever it is they're doing. And you find yourself a place to sit down and start, you know, and I haven't been to school in 20 years. And even when I did go to school, it was at Juilliard. It wasn't a whole lot of lectures. You know, it's like, it's just a completely foreign world. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was, it was really, really scary. And then once you do it, you're like, okay, did that keep moving what do i do next were you going to school part-time or were you when you're getting yeah. this continuing ed stuff doing it full-time so i would um so what i would do is like i had a basic i mean i eventually did find uh a, a you know a, a thing that basically told me you know what classes it was as simple as like i eventually actually did make an appointment with somebody at the college of continuing education at the university of minnesota and and they managed to just kind of sit down and say well here's what medical school is what they would want you to have and and what you can transfer from what you did before and so they did all of that and they kind of lined that up for me and then um where were we? Sorry, I forgot where we were going. I was just wondering if you were in school part-time or full-time at that oh, point. Yes. Sorry. So did that. And then – so what I would have to do is I'd have to register for a class because what was happening is I was still doing plays. Um, I think I did one play at the, the Children's Theater whereas Daddy Warbucks during for Annie and then I was doing shows at the Guthrie like the Christmas Carol. And So what I would do is I would take classes on the weekdays in the mornings before noon because then I'd have to be at the theater for rehearsals or performance by noon. And then I would 
do performances and rehearsals all night, you know, all day and all night. And then I'd have class in the mornings again. And then theaters are generally black. They don't do shows on or dark on Monday. So I would schedule all of my labs, my chemistry labs and stuff like that. I would have to take a class where the labs were on Monday. So I would be doing that. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a full, it was a part-time thing. At one point, I think I, I was unemployed, didn't have a job. So I took a full load of classes for the summer, biology and chemistry, but just kind of fitting them all in as best I could while I was holding down a job at, at, you know, in the theater. So, and it ended up taking me about three years to get all of the the prereqs done before I could actually apply to school. Was uh, your wife and were you concerned about making this financially feasible (laughs) in terms of, you know, having two daughters and (laughs) a house, I assume a mortgage? Yes. Yes, we still are. Um, a lot of it, a lot of it. I, I managed to get through the prereqs, um, and not owe any money. I mean, it was just one of those things where it was like, okay, I managed to make enough money while I was, you know, as an actor of all things that I could pay for the classes that I was taking. But once I got into medical school, there hasn't been, I I can't, I can't do theater in medical school. It's a full time thing. Um, so really, uh, you know, and my wife, my wife, she's, you know, obviously she's an actress. She teaches, she directs, um, you know, so she's got money coming in, but nevertheless, I mean, for the family, uh, medical school has been, uh, we've put this all, this has all been paid for basically with loans. So there's going to be a whole lot, but it's the kind of thing where it's like, People would get out of theater. People would get out. I remember people getting graduate degrees in theater and coming out with, you know, $120,000, $150,000 in debt. And I'd think, $150,000 in debt and you're an actor? How in the world are you ever going to pay that? You know? Well, you obviously the TV, the TV series are going to end up on right away, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. They'll pay for it. <laughs> but – you know, for, you know, for medical students, it's like, and I realize, I mean, medical students is ridiculously expensive and, and shouldn't be the way it is. But there's also a part of me that's like, you know, medical students are going to pay off their loans. It's the philosophy degree in, you know, the philosophy masters, that's going to be a hard one to pay off. So understood. Yeah, definitely. Well, so were your daughters supportive of this change? I mean, it, obviously, this is going to affect them, too. Yeah. What did they yeah. think? Well, I mean, wow, this is a whole other, um, but, uh, a month after I got accepted into medical school and, and, and I know this wasn't where this was going, but a month, like literally a month after I got accepted to medical school before I had started school, um, my wife, um, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, so add that to the whole mix that she's now the good news is she's she she did have a bilateral mastectomy um but she's she's great for all intents and purposes she's she doesn't have cancer knock on wood you know she's absolutely fantastic right now but so yeah i mean was it wow. <laughs> how was this for the family i mean you can only imagine it, it it's a uh, you know they've been incredible 
incredibly supportive. Every once in a while, something something just breaks my heart when when I have to, you know, something comes up and I'm like, listen, you know, dad is. I, there was some point I can't remember what the specific was, but I was explaining to the to, to the girls that that um, that dad was going to be very busy and probably wasn't going to be around a whole lot, you know, for the next stretch of eight weeks or you know, and uh, and they were great. And, it, you know, and then come to find out later that, like, after I had walked out of the room or something, that, that my youngest daughter, Tess, just broke down sobbing because she just didn't want me to be gone. And, you know, I think I think she has made she has resented medical school more than 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 Ella has. But that may be just because Ella is, a you know, she's a peacemaker. So, you know. I, I think it's been hard. It's been well. I know it's been hard on them, um, and it's it's hard for me too because it's like you know I don't. Um, I'm always trying to strike a balance. I'm not necessarily interested in going to medical school and being the med student that that um, gets honors in every every class and gets the high score on all the tests and and becomes the next super orthopedic surgeon slash dermatologist because I just think there's too much happening in my life right now that, that I'm not willing to miss. So, so in, in some senses it's like, I'm, I'm kind of finding the balance. It's like, yeah, I'm passing and I'm doing okay in school, but you know, I, I, I joked that at some point I would have to, 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 to say to a that I would be in an interview at some point saying you know uh, I don't measure my success in medical school by how many honors I got in class I measure my success by the fact that my wife and I still love each other and that my kids still enjoy spending time with me so your priorities are completely different from probably 90 percent plus of your uh co-students in your class I assume I think so. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and I think I've got to believe that that makes you stand out quite a bit from them and their lives are just they're so different i mean i think the bulk of students at the u of m at least are in their 20s probably and so yeah many of them have come straight from college if at most they've taken a year or two off so very different from your situation was it what was the experience of being in medical school now that you're near the end of it looking back how was your experience different from the experience that, that they were having do you feel like your life experiences have made medical school easier in some ways for you maybe than for them because you've been kind of out of the quote real world or, mm-hmm. or, or do you have any thoughts on that? It's interesting because I think, you know, med school kind of splits itself. There's the first two years where you really are, you're in school and you're, you're listening to lectures and you're taking notes and you do tests and, and that's the first two years of medical school. And, uh, you know, I, I I found those those were particularly challenging for me um, because you've been because out of practice. I mean, you weren't. Yeah, I was out of practice, and it wasn't necessarily like I say that wasn't necessarily my my. You know, there were, and then with whereas then the the third and the fourth year you're on rotations, meaning you're actually seeing patients and working with doctors, and, and it's a much more kind of hands on. You're you're basically a baby doctor. You're starting to actually practice medicine. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, I mean, more so than I, I think I realized that it, I, I, 
I, I have no problem. I, I love that. I mean, that's just me kind of getting a chance to just sit and talk with people and kind of find out what's going on and, and, and learn. So, yeah, I think those are the, the parts that, um, you know, I can't really stay for, for the rest of my med students because, because I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for, you know, the 20 something kid that comes in and, and how the challenges that they are facing in terms of, of medical school and, and, and the, the kind of life lessons that they that they have ahead of them, and and yet at the same time, you know, they're med students, and and they tend to be incredibly intelligent, incredibly sensitive, well-rounded. You know, there are amazing people in that school that just because they're twenty-six doesn't mean that they're not extraordinary people. So, oh, definitely, definitely. I married one of them, so it, you know, it works out. Yeah, okay. but yeah, and I can say she's absolutely magnificent. So, well, I'll be sure uh, I'll make her listen to this just so she can hear that. <laughs> but yeah, it's I I think that being around a lot of those students, I saw both sides of it that I think that there were a lot of challenges that they maybe weren't necessarily um prepared to face just because they hadn't faced them. Workplace types of challenges almost. You know, like they've been in school for so long they're finally getting thrown out onto rotations and dealing with coworkers and other things mm-hmm. that uh, that you would have already dealt with where maybe you had an advantage kind of coming in just being more sure of who you were and and all that um it's kind of yeah. interesting to think about so i'm wondering during those first 2 years when like you said it's tests it's classes it's lectures were there moments where you thought what am i doing oh, yeah. <laughs> i want to quit <laughs> i'm so sick of this yeah i i think um you know, there was probably there was a, probably a very big part of me that that having spent three years doing the undergrad, you know, doing the the, the prereqs, um, and and then finally getting into medical school and and you know, investing the time and the money and the energy and and and, and everything that um, that I was very very reluctant during those first two years to actually admit to myself or to anybody else that. That wow, this is a this is a huge this is a mistake, um, but yeah, there were certainly those times where I just thought, wow, I don't know if I don't know how much I can admit this to myself or to anybody else, but yeah, oh yeah, there were definitely times where I think, oh, I don't I don't know, is this am I going to be happy doing this? I'm spending a whole lot of time learning the Krebs cycle for heaven's sake. And money. And money, by the way. And money, exactly, too. You know, And the further along you get into med school, the more the, the less willing you are to say, this is a mistake and i got to get out of here. So. Sure. Well, and being married to a doctor, it just it's crazy to have – I'm remembering this in med school thinking, well, especially after the first two years are done – the first two years are nothing like what it's actually going to be like being a doctor. So you just have to, and even the second two years with the, the rotation mm-hmm. schedule you're on, that's really not what it's going to be like to be working at a clinic or wherever. And you just got to, you got to learn it. You got to <laughs> absorb as much as you can, but hang yeah. on, it's going to get better as I think the message yeah. that, that people need to hear. But it's so hard, like you said, because you don't want to admit how hard it is to everybody else. Like, were, did you feel like you could talk to your wife about it or were you? 
you worried that she's going to think, oh my gosh, we made this huge sacrifice and borrowed all this money. What do you mean? It's not what you, you're not sure that you want to do this anymore. <laughs> I, I, it's interesting. I, I think I could speak to her, but that, that does bring up an interesting, I, I was having this conversation the other day with somebody where just talking about the, the whole idea that, that, you know, um, being a physician kind of has this, uh, it's very much about being the person who is taking care of you, being the person who can help you with your problems. It's very, it's not about having problems. It's about fixing other people's problems. Um, and as such, it's also very much like, oh, do you have insecurities? Do you have fear? Doctors and even med students, there's, you know, there are opportunities, there are avenues there where, where people say, like, if you're a med student and you're having problems with class or this is frustrating you or you're struggling with depression or anything like that, come and, you know, there are these places where you can go and you can talk to support groups, just like there are for so many students at the University of Utah. But there is something about the culture of medicine that... that um, Med students, and I think following into doctors, they don't they don't reach very quickly for help um, because they're just much more comfortable being the one giving help than they are helping. Um, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody. So I'm in my first two years of medical school, and and I'm thinking, God, what you know, having second thoughts about it, and you know. I think I just very quickly find myself it's much easier to this than focus on taking care of the problems with with my daughters or you know listening to somebody else's problem than it is to actually saying you know these are things that um these are things that I you know oh my god what if I've made a mistake sure it does seem like maybe this is changing a little bit in med school where I think there's more conversation about making sure that you're taking care of yourself because if you're not doing that, you're not any good to anybody. Yeah. But and it's I, a slow I think, change. Yeah. There's much less of a I, – I think it's much less than – you know. there's certainly the reputation of doctors as being the people who have the answers and know how to – you know. it's like no. I, I think they very much kind of move away from that. Um I suppose I think that it's more of just like, you know, there is a movement away from that kind of of um, attitude and mentality, but but it still exists, I guess. Um, and I, I think I say this more than, you know, I mean, I talk about this more now than more just because it's like this exists and, and it's something that even I try to think of like, you know, it's a good idea to maybe like, be willing to talk about what it is, my insecurities or my frustrations or any of those kind of things. So, so for people that don't know, uh, the, the process then at the end of medical school is that you start zeroing in on a specialty and, and then you look at residency (laughs) because it doesn't end. It's not over yet. And, uh, residency is a, anywhere from three to more than that (laughs) years of additional training on site at one particular place. And I believe that you are looking at family medicine, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So at what point in medical school or before that, did you realize that family medicine was going to be the specialty for you? I think I went into medical school 
already thinking that that family medicine made a whole lot of sense to me, uh, just in terms of the things that we've already talked about in terms of like investing in people's stories and, and understanding, you know, family medicine is where you get that kind of, you're with a patient for the long haul. You, you, you see them and then you see them again in a year, you see them in six months, but you see them over several years span and you kind of know, you know, their wife, their kids, their family, you know, what things they've struggled with before, what things are coming, you know, it's just, that's, the holistic aspect of somebody's life um, that really um, appeals to me. And I, I, I think I knew that coming into medical school. You go into medical school and then it's always a good idea to kind of say, well, open up to everything because you're going to be exposed to, to, to everything that's, that's happening and, and all the specialties and et cetera. So I, I stepped away from family medicine just to say, what about emergency or what about surgery or this, that, and the other thing. But, um, but you know, family medicine, certainly I come back to it knowing, yeah, this is the right place for me. So, were there any other specialties that besides emergency that seemed interesting to you or was it just pretty much, yeah, this is what's going to be for me? What's interesting is that, that right there in the beginning, you know, as, as, um, my, as Shelly was going through breast cancer, there were moments where, for example, you know, we, we would meet with the surgeon that was going to kind of do the surgery, you know, to remove the, the, the tumors. Um, and we'd sit with her for an hour and I thought, wow, that, you know, cause certainly family med docs, your appointments tend to be 15 minutes. I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing that you can sit and just really get to know somebody for an hour or then her oncologist that she continues to see again, real, real kind of appreciation for the person and, and spending the time. And so, yeah, I, I, I came away feeling like, listen, family medicine doesn't, you know, corner the market on, on really appreciating people and their lives and their stories. Um, so I, I certainly looked around at oncology and, and, uh, and surgery and, and, and probably emergency medicine less than most because emergency, at least, in, from my perspective, tends to be very, you come in and whoever comes into the emergency room, you, you see what their problem is and you kind of, it's a very kind of, uh, sometimes I can't remember the names of the patients 20 minutes after they've left kind of thing. Very so, in and out. Like, you know, if they're missing a limb, you make sure that you stop the bleeding and, and minimize yeah. the trauma and then you never hear from them again. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. So that, that makes sense. So family medicine matches your personality. It matches your background. Yeah. And so, so that's what you're looking mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. Or if someone was to come to you and say, you know, hey, Mark, I'm thinking about making a big career change myself. I've been doing this thing for a long time. And, you know, I'm thinking about making this big investment in time, in money. Um, it's going to be a big sacrifice for my family. You've done this. Right. What do you have to tell me about that? Yeah. I mean, I think um, – I mean, I certainly, you know, I mean, if somebody wanted to make those changes, obviously, for for obvious reasons, I think, um, 
you know, the idea that like, yeah, do it, especially if you feel like that's what's going to make you happy. I think I'm not, not I'm not hedonist about it. It's not like what's going to make you happy, regardless of what the other people in your life think. But but for me, I, I think Shelley would say that that uh, as hard as it's been um, going through this experience for for my family, I think she'll say that I'm a I'm a better person probably and a better you know a better person a happier person and a and a, and a more uh, you know a better father and a better husband I think for doing this than I than I would have been if I didn't make this choice so and you know is it the right thing to do is it not the right thing to do boy those are um, those are really individual things I, I think well was it the right thing for you are you can you say that at this point I know that you're not uh, officially an MD yet but I actually, I think I can. I, I mean, I think, you know, I, I think I can say that this was the right thing for for me to do. Um, and I, the reason I hesitated in talking about that, it was just the idea that it's like, I, 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 I said, oh, yeah, you should go for it. But I don't necessarily think I can say that. If somebody came to me and said, I'm thinking about making this kind of big life decision, um, it tends to be one of those things where I think I can't, I can't tell you whether you should do that or not. Were um, there things that you didn't think about because you just would never have known to think about them that now looking back, you're like, oh man, how did I not realize things like the time commitment or uh, how much your life and, and your relationships with your daughters would change things like that. Like do any things like that come to mind that are pretty obvious to you now? Um, nothing that's terribly obvious, I have to say. There are times where I still kind of, you know, I'm, I'm somebody that kind of uh, second guesses my my decisions. So, you know, like now there may be moments where I think, did I really need to go all the way to medical school? To the, which could I have made another choice where I might have felt this happy? You know, or I might have, you know, was it just, did I just need to leave theater or did I need to do medicine? Um Hard to know, though, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I think, but I, I, having said that, it's like, no, I, I, I've, you know, on the grand scheme of things, I have been incredibly happy. You know, I actually, I, you know, we talked about the, how the first two years are, but I actually loved, I loved the study. I loved the learning. I loved, you know, that, that kind of work and, and, exercising like I said that whole part of me that that whole separate part of me that I hadn't been in touch with in a long time so you know and then I now I love what I'm doing now and 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 I think I'm just going to love it more and more the further along I go so so you mentioned that your wife thinks that you are a better person and a better father and everything uh, today than you were previously. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering, I'm just going to throw this at you and see what you think. Sure. Do you think that that is a result of the fact that you had to humble yourself and you had to kind of start from square one at something and you had to go back to the drawing board and kind of build this new life for yourself? Or do you think it was specifically the medicine that did that? That's a big question, I know, but I, it's something I'm thinking about because I could see the former being the case definitely because as adults, I think we get so used to being in our zone and we get more and more expert in whatever it is we're doing. I think we can get really uncomfortable with having to be so vulnerable again and starting from scratch at anything. And I'm wondering yeah. if that's part of it. Yeah, 
I absolutely think that that is true. Um, you know, I, I, I think, uh, and I've really kind of appreciated that the idea that like, Oh, okay. You know, and, and it's not as though I, I don't have ego, but, um, but it has been, you know, I think, I think in all honesty, it's probably a combination of both because I think part of what, you know, the kind of having to, to, to humble myself in terms of starting over again and, and doing all of this, but it's also the things that, that you learn in terms of, um, communication and, 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 and listening skills. And there's just, yeah, I think it's a combination of, of, of the two that's probably made me a better person. And I think the other thing about it too, that when, when I say better person, I think is, is the idea that, that, um, for, for whatever reasons, I feel more secure in, in what I'm doing now than I did as an actor. Why do you think that is? I think it's probably, you know, on the, like, you know, the first, probably the most kind of obvious and, well, not, you know, it, the, the most kind of basic level is the idea that, yeah, it, it's, it's, it is pretty nice, the idea that, that you're a doctor and that there will always be a need for doctors and you're not, you know, you don't, you, there's not a whole lot of doctors that can't find jobs. That's nice. Sure. But beyond that, I think, is the idea that, that this has been a huge uh, challenge, continues to be a huge challenge, really challenging. Um, but there is a sense of, I, with, along with, with, with any challenge, I think, is that idea that as you kind of continue along this road, each time you face this, each time you face a challenge like this, there's a sense of, wow, <laughs> look what I accomplished. I like that about life. I like the idea that it's like, and, and that. I'm weaving all over the place, but that was one of the things that I've talked about a little bit with theater, that it was like, I just didn't feel like I was coming up against challenges where I felt like, I don't really know if I can do this. I don't really know how to do this. I'm, I'm at a loss. What do I do now? I felt it didn't feel bad. And I, I, I feel that most days in, in my life now, I feel, um, I feel that that kind of wow. I don't I don't really quite know how to do it, and and then when I manage to achieve something, it, it, it's it's phenomenal, and it really gives me a sense of fulfillment. So, and so you get this accomplishment, and uh, yeah, I guess accomplishment is the way to, to word it that you just weren't getting anymore in theater, or maybe you never really had that in theater in the same way that you're having this now. Perhaps I, I think I think there were times in theater where you know you know early on in theater where geez I just don't I don't quite know how to do this I don't know how to you know can I can I you know or 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 I remember when I started teaching in theater and I was like I don't know if I know how to do this I don't I, you know or when I started directing or writing or things like that I thought I don't know how to do that and it was exhilarating to kind of like. I started this and I didn't know where, how to begin. And now, you know, look back, look what I, look what I made, look what I created. 
Sure. So. Are you worried at all that you won't be able to maintain that feeling going forward in medicine? Or do you feel like it's a big enough change in that with every patient, there's a new story coming your way that that will not matter so much to you? I think I think it's a real I, – I think I see it already in – there are people that I see where – you know, um, where they get into this profession and, and, and they get very comfortable and they know how to in comes the patient with a sore throat or in comes the well child check and, you know, and they can do it very much by rote. And so, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of conversation nowadays about act, I mean, even about, uh, burnout with physicians where they just stop kind of, feeling um fulfilled by their work and uh so i see that and i you can start to see it happen in in different different doctors and different physicians and so so yeah i mean i'm very aware that it can happen within within medicine as well um another reason why i think i'm excited about family medicine is that family medicine more than a lot of different different fields of medicine feels like an area where um doctors like to do a lot of stuff they i mean these are doctors some of them are you know do a lot of you know this they deliver a lot of babies some of them teach some of them work in you know emergency rooms some of them write some of them are Um, on npr some of them are on npr you know exactly, and 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 it's not like I don't think you know on some level. Um, I did. It, this was something that I meant to say at some point during this this talk was just the idea that um, I think I got on a sidetrack, but I was talking about the idea that like just because I went to from theater to medicine, one of the things that stopped me from making that jump for a considerable number of years was the fact that that I felt like if I'm going to go to medicine, I'm abandoning theater, that, that, that I'm not that whole part of me. Like I just cut it off and it just kind of wilts and dies. Um, and part of that whole checkoff experience and was one of the things that that was teaching me was that actually know that, that, that 22 years life experience is going to feed me in ways that I have, I, I don't even realize yet. Um, and so moving forward, you know, how do I prevent burnout as a physician? I think one of the things is I have a lot of tools at my um, disposal in terms of what I can do with medicine um, that, that are this amazing art that I was such a part that was such a part of me for 22 years. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm not quite sure how theater informs my practice as a doctor, but but it, I'm sure it will. That's a perfect place, I think, to end this because I was actually just going to ask you if you were going to find a way to incorporate your past life into uh, your future life as a physician. So there you go. It, it remains to be seen, but it sounds like it's something you're at least thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, fantastic, Mark. Anything else you want to add? No, I, I think this has been great. I hope this worked for you, Eric. I hope there's a lot of stuff there and yeah oh i think it's fascinating you you have a fantastic story and i really appreciate you taking the time to share it with me tonight thank you very much eric it was great talking to you